Well, in tonight's chapters, Isaiah is in the midst of six woes. We find the word woe mentioned in chapter 28, verse 1, 29, verse 1, 29, verse 15, 30, verse 1, 31, verse 1, and 33, verse 1. Of course, a woe is a warning. Misery is on the horizon. Chapters 28 through 35 of Isaiah describe how God will judge His people Israel and His city Jerusalem. God's judgment will result in a time of terrible calamity or woe. Tonight's chapter is Isaiah 29 through 31. Now when I hear the word woe, W-O-E, I think of W-H-O-A. Woe! If you're riding horseback, this is the command you use to cause the animal to stop. And it's also the expression of amazement, an expression of surprise. Whenever we say, whoa, that's a cause to pause. Consider, whoa, did you see that? Whoa, I didn't think of it that way. When I see the word W-O-E, I think W-H-O-A. When trouble lies ahead, we need to slow down and to think through how we can avoid the distress. This is the attitude we need when we come to a biblical woe. Isaiah 28, remember, was a woe against alcohol. Now Isaiah 29 is a woe against another form of intoxication. Verse 9 tells us, they are drunk, but not with wine. The nation's discernment has become clouded. It's become blurred by spiritual numbness. The Jews have suffered from a spiritual hangover. They're drunk and blind to the Word of God. The chapter begins, chapter 29. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. The Hebrew name Ariel means Lion of God. And this was the nickname that Jerusalem had took for itself. Of course, this was far from God's opinion of His people. The Jews were living on a proud past. They were the Lion of God. The term harkened back to the days of David when the nation was mighty, when the nation ruled other nations like a lion in the forest. But those were bygone days by the time of Isaiah. In Isaiah's day, they had made alliances with other nations, foreign nations. They had signed protection treaties. They would put their trust in the powerful neighbors to the south. They trusted in Egypt and in Ethiopia. And thus, rather than lion of God, they were chicken little. That's what Isaiah is going to point out. Isaiah continues, Add year to year, let feasts come around. I will distress Ariel. There shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me as Ariel. God will fiercely fight against Jerusalem as if the city were a proud lion. He promises her defeat, funeral music in fact. The phrase heaviness and sorrow can be rendered lamentation. The holy city won't be a happy city. They'll be grieving in Jerusalem. For he says, I will encamp against you all around. I will lay siege against you with a mound. And I will raise siege works against you. Now, it's difficult for us modern folk to imagine the terror conjured up in people's minds when faced with the prospect of ancient siege warfare. 
A siege occurred when a city was surrounded by its enemy's armies. Troops would immediately cut off all supply lines and communications. The siege army camped outside the city. Often cities were under siege for decades on end. No matter how well stocked a city might be, it eventually would run out of food. Its residents were faced with the choice of surrender, starvation, or cannibalism. When Isaiah mentions this term siege, it struck fear in his readers' hearts. It brought to mind images of desperate, starving people dying a slow, torturous death. Verse 4, you shall be brought down, you shall speak out of the ground, Your speech shall be low, out of the dust. Your voice shall be like a medium's, out of the ground. And your speech shall whisper out of the dust. Rather than praise in the streets of Ariel or Jerusalem, no. There'll be low, guttural, bass sounds uttered by the people. You know, when a starving, tortured tortured people talk, they do so in agonizing tones. Rather than roar like a lion... They'll speak in low, mumbling, guttural growls, like the voice of a demon, you could say. As they say, it's hard to strike a happy medium. There's no laughter in a city under siege. And yet God will deliver Jerusalem, verse 5. Moreover, the multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust. And the multitude of the terrible ones like chaff that passes away. Yes, it shall be in an instant, suddenly. You will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. The multitude of all the nations who fight against Ariel, even all who fight against her in her fortress and distress her, shall be as a dream of a night vision. God will use the nations to judge His people Israel. But then He Himself will judge the nations. And Jerusalem will become the world's worst nightmare. As we mentioned last time, Isaiah is a blend of both local and future judgments. Think of it this way. All of God's judgments are really precursors for the final judgment. They're sort of a shot across the bow to warn us that if we don't back down... Greater judgments are ahead. Jerusalem's enemy in Isaiah's day was Assyria. But according to verse 7, in the last days, God's judgment goes global. He'll judge a multitude of all the nations. It shall shall even be as when a hungry man dreams. And look, he eats, but he awakes and his soul is still empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreams. And look, he drinks, but he awakes. And indeed, he is faint, and his soul still craves. So the multitude of all the nations shall be who fight against Mount Zion. The enemy had dreamed of conquest, but God will bring about a defeat. He says, pause and wonder. Blind yourself and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep, and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. In other words, God judged Jerusalem of Isaiah's day with a spiritual blindness, with a spiritual slumber. Other than Isaiah, the prophets of God had become silent. No one was trumpeting God's warning and God's word. 
The prophets and the seers, you could say, were asleep on the job. You remember a few decades earlier, around the year 750 B.C., the prophet Amos had predicted this development. As Isaiah began his ministry, Amos was ending his. And Amos had said this in chapter 8, verse 11, The days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. You see, Isaiah was seeing the fulfillment of what Amos had prophesied just a few decades earlier. And I have to say that sadly, this seems to be the condition in our land today. There are places in the world, even in America, that lack solid, consistent teaching of the Word of God. There's a famine in the land, a spiritual famine of the Word of God. Churches, afraid to offend, tend to shy away from the whole counsel of God. They soft-pedal Christianity. Once my wife had a friend who invited her to a local Methodist church that was hosting a support group for moms. Her friend was so frustrated. Kathy told me uh, when they got in the car and started to walk in the church, her friend said to her, maybe you can get them to talk about God. They're tired of hearing it from me. I mean, not every church in our community is committed to the teaching of the Scriptures. And yet this is what it takes to cause faith to grow. A consistent diet of God's Word. The Bible is faith's only fertilizer. In a spiritual famine, faith ends up withering. We need a steady diet of God's Word to grow in our faith. Verse 11 tells us, The whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I am not literate. I mean, the idea is that nobody bothers to open their Bible and take heed. People who can read refuse to do so. They make excuses. Oh, this is too hard to understand. It's sealed. It's been said the man who won't read is no better than the man who can't read. That certainly applies to the Bible. I know people who will fight for the doctrine of inerrancy. They believe that the Bible is infallible. They just never read it, let alone teach what the Bible tells us. Well, notice in verse 13, God goes on the record. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. Wow. They talk the talk. They say all the right words, but their hearts betray those words. They pay God lip service, but there's no conviction, no commitment, no follow-through. You remember Jesus used this verse in Matthew chapter 15 to describe the Pharisees of His own day. I've heard it said, a man who is right in his head and wrong in his heart is wrong all over. You see, it's about willingness, not just words. Once there was a young pastor, he approached an older, wiser mentor He placed his hands on the older man's gray hair. He said, I'm trying to find the secret of your success. The old pastor replied, too high, young man, too high. He took the young man's hands and he moved them down to his heart. 
And he said to him, the secret of whatever success God has given me is down here, not up here. In verse 13, Isaiah mentions another problem. He says, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Rather than obey God because they loved Him, they were forced to obey God out of fear of Him, out of fear of His retribution. Hey, this isn't the obedience that pleases God. Subjection to God should always rise out of affection for God. We should want to serve Him because we love Him. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. God will deliver His people from this promised siege. He'll give them a reason to praise Him. He'll be gracious. They don't deserve His deliverance, but He'll grant it. And it's His grace that will turn them into true worshipers. Verse 15, Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us? And who knows us? <laughs> Never think that you can hide a deed or a thought from God. And of course, intellectually, we would all agree that this is preposterous. I mean, how could we hide anything from God? Theoretically, we say that. But practically, have you ever acted like you were slipping one past God? As if He wasn't watching or that He had fallen asleep or that He would buy your excuse? Don't be so foolish. Isaiah says, surely you have things turned around. In other words, you've got it all backwards. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? The clay is subject to the potter, not vice versa. The potter has total sovereignty over the clay. Likewise, God does whatever He pleases. The clay, that's us. Answers to the potter, that's Him, not vice versa. There's a great riddle. Where in the forest does the lion sleep? The answer, anywhere he wants. And so it is with God. He does whatever He pleases. It's interesting, this is the verse that Paul uses when he discusses God's sovereignty in Romans chapter 9. God doesn't ask us for permission. He doesn't owe us an explanation before He works in our lives. God is the potter. We're just clay in the potter's hands. God seeks no counsel. He apologizes for nada. It's God Almighty's prerogative to do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, however He wants, to whomever He wants. Hey, God is the boss. and We need to love Him for that. Remember, Job also had things all turned around. He reacted to the calamity in his life by questioning God. You remember the book of Job? He demanded over and over and over again to know why. And yet the more he questioned God, his reverence for God grew smaller and smaller and smaller while his arrogance grew larger and larger and larger. Job too got it all turned around. Until at the end of the book, God comes and puts Job back in his place. God starts questioning Job. Asking him questions he can't possibly answer. He shows Job how little he really knows. God lets the air out of Job's pride. And Job learns to trust God. Even when he can't trace all of his ways. 
Can you trust God even when you can't trace Him? As Job, these Jews, they need to embrace God's sovereignty. Verse 17 tells us, Is it not yet a little, very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest? Lebanon was known by the ancients for its cedar trees. And yet here he predicts that the land will be denuded. When the Assyrians flood into Lebanon, as they march toward Jerusalem, they'll turn the forests into plowed fields. Afterwards, though, God will restore the forests. In other words, God will make the mountains bald, and then He'll turn right back around and He'll replant the forests. In other words, God does just as He pleases. Verse 18 tells us, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. One day this spiritual famine for God's word will end. He says, For the terrible one is brought to nothing. The scornful one is consumed. And all who watch for iniquity are cut off. Who make a man an offender by a word and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate and turn aside the just by empty words? The deceivers who try to stumble and tell lies will one day be cut off. And then he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham, concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now grow pale. But when he sees his children, the work of his hands in his midst, they will hallow my name and hallow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. Those also who erred in spirit will come to understanding, and those who complain will learn doctrine. Though darkness and blindness had covered Jerusalem in Isaiah's day, the future forecast is still bright. Those who erred will come to understanding. And I believe this is a prophecy for the last days concerning Israel. Romans chapter 11 verse 25 tells us that hardening in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved. By the time Jesus returns, Israel will be purified. They'll embrace Him as their Savior. God isn't through with Israel. As we learn here in Isaiah, one day they will reverence Him. Well, chapter 30 begins another woe. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel but not of me, and who devise plans but not of my Spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Now Hezekiah was the king at the time of Isaiah's prophecy. His predecessor, King Ahaz, had sinned by failing to stand up to the bully on the block, to the Assyrians. The Assyrians, you see, they were like the mob. They sort of moved into the neighborhood, they started blackmailing the locals, and they demanded that the people in the land start paying protection money. Well, Ahaz, he gave in to the bully. He paid the Assyrians, paid them off in order for, to maintain some sort of peace. He became a puppet king. But Hezekiah, he didn't so much want to deal with the Assyrians. He, he went a step further. He sinned by turning to other nations for help rather than God. 
He was bracing himself against Assyria, not by trusting God, but by trying to develop a protection treaty with the Egyptians and with the Ethiopians. In other words, Ahaz refused to trust God, whereas Hezekiah put his trust in the world. See, when trouble strikes, there's really two places we can turn. The flesh or the spirit. We can turn to man or we can turn to God. We can rely on divine intervention or we can rely on human effort. Here Isaiah, he chooses a strange bedfellow. He turns to the Egyptians. You know, it must have offended God all the more that he turned to Israel's ancient oppressor, the Egyptians. Seven centuries earlier, God had delivered Israel from Egypt. Since that time, Israel had represented bondage and slavery and hardship and sin. Why go backwards? And I think this is at times what God asks of us. Why have we turned backwards? What has this world offered you and me other than frustration and hollow promises? Your former friends abandoned you when life got tough. What were supposed to be shortcuts turned into long detours. Why have you turned your back on God rather than leaning in to His plan for your life? Yes, God's will often involves a little pain and trial. But have you given Him an opportunity to work in your life? Or has fear or doubt or uncertainty caused you to retreat to the familiar, even if it's Egypt, a system that used to oppress you and rob you of your freedom? Once there was a woman... She was aboard a little twin-engine Cessna when the pilot had a heart attack in flight. He fell unconscious. She was able to activate the radio and she started screaming, Mayday! Mayday! The tower picked up her cry for help. But the air traffic controller failed to make contact because in her panic, she kept changing the channels on the radio. If she had just stayed on the channel, he could have guided her in safely. She kept changing the channels. And likewise, God can get through to us. God can help us. But we have to trust Him long enough to wait for Him to complete His work. If we keep changing the channels, if we keep running to this and turning to that, we hinder the deliverance that He wants to bring to our lives. Well, verse 3 says, Therefore the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame. And trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. Pharaoh will prove to be a worthless deliverer. Israel will be ashamed that they even trusted in Egypt. He says, for his princes were of Zoan, and his ambassadors came to Hanes. They were all ashamed of a people who could not benefit them, or be help or benefit, but a shame and also a reproach. Egypt will be of no help. Notice Isaiah here mentions the city of Hanes. It was located near the mouth of the Nile River. It was a manufacturing plant for Egyptian underwear. The city of Hanes. <laughs> Not really. Actually, the city of Hanes, it went by a Greek name, Tanis. In the movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, it was the home of the map room for the ark. You remember the scene where he laid the, put the stick down and cast the shadow. According to history, Tannis was buried in a sandstorm. And true to the movie, its ruins were found by German archaeologists in 1936. 
Isaiah here recalls it as the place where the Jewish representatives struck a deal with their Egyptian ambassadors. I guess you could say at Haines, the Jews were sort of jockeying for protection. You know, this world always offers more than it can deliver. I hope you don't fall for it. I hope you don't try to compromise with the world. I hope you wait and trust in God. Learn to wait on Him. Just remember, the devil can't wait to get his hands on you. Uh, verse 6. The burden against the beasts of the south. That is a reference to Egypt. Through a land of trouble and anguish, from which came the lioness and lion, the viper and fire, fiery flying serpent. They shall carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people who shall not profit. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore I have called her Rahab Hemshabeth. Rahab means proud. This was an ancient name for Egypt. God gives Egypt the name Rahab sits idle. Now here Isaiah sees the Hebrew caravans. They're crossing the deserts of Sinai. They're carrying treasure to buy protection from the Egyptians. It never materializes. Egypt takes the money. But when the chips are down, the Egyptians refuse to fight. They're nowhere to be found. God's people have been taken advantage of. Verse 8 adds, Now go, write it before them on a tablet, and note it on a scroll, that it may be for time to come, forever and forever, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits. You see, Israel didn't like the truth. They wanted to be told what they wanted to hear. They were like the proverbial ostrich with its head in the sand. They preferred ignorance rather than be confronted with truth and with trust and with real change. Israel's rebellious heart cried out, Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Notice this. Rather than submit to God, they deny His existence. They pretend that He's not there. And this is the sinful posture of our modern world. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says of the last days, our day, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. I think we can safely say that that time is upon us right now. When people don't want to hear the truth, they want to hear what tickles. I read of a pastor in Massachusetts who was told by the elders of his church to keep his sermons to 10 minutes, to tell a lot of funny stories, and to leave the people feeling great about themselves. That was his orders. This church wanted entertainment, not truth. You know, some folks today, they don't want church. They want a spiritual spa. They want a watered-down gospel, something tailored to them, not repentance, not transformation. The goal is to pacify people, not please God. 
It's been said of the popular gospel preached so often today, if it were a medicine, it would be too weak to heal, and if it were a poison, it would be too weak to harm. Verse 12 tells us, Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, Because you despise this word, and trust in oppression and perversity, and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. Boy, like a bulge in a high wall. As the people ignore God's woe, judgment builds, and it builds, and it builds, until a bulge produces, until it finally pops. Fail to trust God. Rely elsewhere, and the bulge will eventually turn into a breach. And he shall break it like the breaking of the potter's vessel, which is broken in pieces. He shall not spare. So there shall not be found among its fragments a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water from the cistern. God promises to shatter Judah's confidence in Egypt's deliverers like a shattered piece of pottery. Imagine dropping a clay jar on the concrete floor. It's shattering into a million pieces. Nothing big enough now to remove the ashes from the hearth or to get water in order to drink. He says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. Quiet confidence, not worldly compromise, was what Israel needed. Quiet confidence. This is always the key to our deliverance. Return and rest in God. This is how God delivers. He said, but you would not. And you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore you shall flee. and We will ride on swift horses. Therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. The Jews envisioned themselves fleeing from the enemy on the back of Egyptian horses. But if they trust in horses and not in God, they'll find that the Assyrian cavalry and horses are much swifter. God will judge them if they trust in Egypt. One thousand shall flee at the threat of one. The threat of five you shall flee till you are left as a pole on top of a mountain and as a banner on a hill. Hey, when fear, not faith, grips a people, They flee rather than fight. They run rather than stand. And in the end, no one is left to prop them up. If Judah continues to put their confidence in Egypt, they'll be like a solitary flag just flapping in the breeze. Verse 18, Therefore the Lord will wait, and He may be gracious to you. and Therefore He will be exalted, that He may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. (coughs) Do you hear God toe-tapping in verse 18? You should. He's waiting. He's waiting. God is tapping His toe. God is waiting. He's waiting on us. Why? That He may be gracious to us. He's waiting on us to wait on Him. He wants to deliver us from whatever trial it is we face. But we have to trust Him. We have to wait on Him. Thus He will exalt Himself in our praise. And then verse 19. 
For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, let your teachers will not be moved, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. In other words, the lessons will be obvious. Israel will finally understand what God is saying through their trials. He says, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. There had been a famine. There had been a famine of truth for God's word. But the day will come when that famine will cease. When Bible teaching will be restored. When folks will be guided by solid teaching. They'll hear, this is the way, walk in it. They'll no longer flounder. They'll have new direction. And I love verse 21. Ultimately, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is our teacher. You remember Jesus said in John 16, verse 13, When He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. You see, the Holy Spirit is the ear whisperer. He comes alongside us or behind us. And He whispers a reminder in our ears. By doing so, He directs our paths. How often He does so through a scripture that we've already read. And notice the Spirit's whisper. Notice from what direction it comes. It comes from behind us. Hey, don't wait until you face a fork in the road to seek direction. No, the whisper comes from behind us. From the sermon we heard that Sunday. Or from the devotional that we read that previous morning. The whisper always comes from behind us. Don't don't wait until you need a word from God to seek one. God's guidance comes from behind us. We've already heard what we need to hear. It catches up to us. And it whispers in our ears when we slow down and when we pay attention. And then verse 22 tells us, You will also defile the covering of your graven images of silver and the ornament of your molded images of gold. You will throw them away as an unclean thing. You will say to them, get away. When Bible teaching is restored, God's people put away their idols. And there are two kinds of idolatry. One is the worship of false gods, but the other is an attempt to worship the true God, yet in a forbidden way. God considers both to be forms of idolatry. And how is it that we understand how God wants to be worshipped? There's only one way, and that's by opening up His Word and consulting the Scriptures. For in the Bible, God has revealed how He wants to be worshipped. And thus, verse 23 tells us, Then He will give the rain for your seed, with which you sow the ground and bread of the increase of the earth, It will be fat and plentiful. He's looking forward to the day now when Bible teaching returns to Israel and and when good things begin to happen and God begins to bless and begins to prosper His people again. In that day, your cattle will feed in large pastures. Likewise, the oxen and the young donkeys that work the ground will eat cured fodder, which has been winnowed with the shovel and fan. There will be on every high mountain and on every high hill rivers and streams of waters In the day of the great slaughter, when the towers fall, 
Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day that the Lord binds up the bruise of His people and heals the stroke of their wound. Verses 23 through 26 speak of the kingdom age. The day when Jesus returns and brings about a full restoration to His people and to this planet. He'll return to recreate and rule over planet earth. Revelation 20 says that this golden age will last a thousand years. God will redeem the fallen planet. Everything damaged by sin will be rejuvenated. Notice here, crops will be plentiful. Cattle will have room to graze in vast fields. Oxen will eat better than people do today. Water supplies will be abundant. The sun will shine brightly as never before. And God will bind up His people and heal their wounds. When man sin, entropy set in. And entropy affects all of nature. Entropy means that everything is running down. Everything is coming apart. It's falling apart. Natural systems are breaking down and wearing out. The law of decay affects all of nature. The world moves toward randomness. If you don't believe it, buy a new car. It won't be too long before you'll have to take it in for repairs. Energy is further dispersed. All of nature is running down. Even our own sun is winding down. It will eventually flame out. And yet when Jesus returns, He'll reverse the laws of entropy. He'll infuse His creation with fresh energy. When Jesus rules, the sun will shine brighter. Plants will grow quicker. People will heal faster. The oceans will be purified of man's pollution. Plants will flower. And it will all happen faster than anyone thought possible. What a day it will be. Verse 27 tells us, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with His anger, and His burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation and His tongue like a devouring fire. Jesus will return. But when He first appears, it won't be pretty. For He'll be angry. He'll come to avenge God's honor and punish man's wickedness. Before He recreates the planet, He'll first have to punish man. This won't be gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This will be a righteous warrior on a rampage. Isaiah describes him next. His breath is like an overflowing stream which reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of futility. And there shall be a bridle in the jaws of the people causing them to err. The nations will be drawn to judgment. Like a bridle in their jaw, they'll be pulled into the fire. It's a des their destiny that they've earned by their wicked ways. And yet God says to His people, You shall have a song as in the night when a holy festival is kept, and gladness of heart as when one goes with a flute to come into the mountain of the Lord, to the mount mighty one of Israel. Here's a great name for God, the mighty one of Israel. Don't you love that name? He says, the Lord will cause His glorious voice to be heard and show the descent of His arm with the indignation of His anger and the flame of a devouring fire with scattering tempest and hailstones. You better believe that God's final judgment will be felt. That in the end, God will be heard. There'll be no hiding from His wrath. 
You remember Revelation 16, verse 21. It mentions Isaiah's hailstones. And great hail from heaven fell upon men. Every hailstone about the weight of a talent. That is 75 to 100 pounds. Imagine 100 pound hailstones. John saw it in the Revelation. Here Isaiah predicts it. Here in this chapter. God will judge the world with hailstones the size of boulders. And why hailstones you might wonder. Remember the Old Testament penalty for blasphemy? What was it? It was death by stoning. It's interesting, in the last days, God is going to punish this wicked world for its idolatry according to the Old Testament. There'll be no surprises here. The blasphemers will be stoned. But the rocks will come from the one, the only one without sin. They'll rain down from heaven. They'll fall on wicked man. From the hands of God. And then verse 31 tells us. For through the voice of the Lord. Assyria will be beaten down. As he strikes with the rod. And in every place where the staff of punishment passes. Which the Lord lays on him. It will be with tambourines and harps. And in battles of brandishing. He will fight with it. Man will be judged and God will be praised. For Tophet was established of old. Yes for the king it is prepared. He has made it deep and large. Its pyre is fire with much wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, kindles it. Now, Isaiah here mentions a terrible place. He calls it Tophet. In Jerusalem of Isaiah's day, this was the deepest swell in the valley of Hinnom. Now, today there is a lush, green, beautiful park just outside the Jaffa Gate. It's actually a picnic and a concert venue. It's the Valley of Hinnom. But in ancient times, this was a sinister place. In the days of Solomon, it was a center for idolatry. In fact, child sacrifices were offered up to the evil idol of Molech in the Valley of Hinnom. By the time of Jesus, the area was Jerusalem's garbage dump. And a constant smoldering fire burned in this valley. And here, Isaiah uses the valley of Hinnom to help us get a picture of Gehenna, or the lake of fire. The place of eternal punishment, where the worm does not die, where the fire is not quenched. Here, Isaiah describes hell fire. The eternal Tophet is deep and large. Its fire is stoked by an endless supply of fuel. It's kept burning like a stream of lava. How? By the hot breath of a righteous God. Here he's painting a picture of hell. Recall Jesus said that everlasting fire was created for the devil and his angels. Not for human beings. Here in verse 33, Isaiah says it's prepared for the king of Assyria. It could be that here Satan is seen as the ultimate king behind Assyria. Chapter 31 begins another woe. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. You know, sadly, men of all ages are impressed with large numbers and with physical strength. And yet God is invisible, and he's spiritual. 
This is why it requires faith to follow God. Faith sees beyond the few and the frail. Faith sees God. In John chapter 20, the risen Lord said to Thomas, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, you've heard the old saying, seeing is believing. Well, not according to Jesus. Believing is not seeing. It's interesting, Peter was present when Jesus spoke to Thomas. And this is why he wrote of Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. He said, Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Here's what he says of Christian faith. Having not seen, you love. Paul said the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Trust only what you see, and you're being short-sighted. Real faith has eyes to see what's beyond the visible, what's beyond the tangible. You see, in the end, God did deliver Jerusalem. The Assyrians had the city under siege. But in one night, the angel of the Lord, Emmanuel as he was called, drew, came with drawn sword and slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians. It was a massacre at midnight. In the quiet and in the dark, everything changed for the Jews. They went from fear and dread to, as Isaiah, Isaiah says, tambourines and dancing. And yet nothing visible had signaled God's deliverance. There had been no sound of a marching army. There had been no cloud of a stampeding cavalry. Nothing had been seen in advance. And just because we don't see any signs of God's deliverance, it doesn't mean that Jesus isn't right around the corner, ready to intervene in your situation, and ready to bring His deliverance to bear in your life. Verse 2. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and will not call back his words. I like that. For a man who proclaims God's word week in and week out, it's nice to know God doesn't call back his words. There's no, uh, what do they call them when the automobile manufacturer before he speaks. He doesn't need to take anything. not God. Why are you trusting in the Egyptians? Their horses are flesh and not spirit. Why are you trusting in horses? Only those who trust in God will be saved. For thus the Lord has spoken to me as a lion roars and as a young lion over his prey. When a multitude of shepherds is summoned against him, he will not be afraid of their voice nor be disturbed by their noise. So the Lord of hosts 
will come down to fight for Mount Zion and its hill. Jerusalem had called itself Ariel, or Lion of God. But the Lord Himself will fight like a lion when He defends His people and fights for Mount Zion. He says, like birds flying about, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending, He will also deliver it. Passing over, He will preserve it. God will do it. So what should we do? He tells us. Return to Him against whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. For in that day every man shall throw away his idols of silver and his idols of gold. Sin which your own hands have made for yourself. Oh, in that day everyone who didn't trust in God will be ashamed that they didn't. He says, then Assyria shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword not of mankind shall devour him. But he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall become forced labor. He shall cross over to his stronghold for fear, and his princes shall be afraid of the banner, says the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Assyria will fall by the sword, not just any sword, the sword of the Lord. And to document the account, Isaiah will insert some history into his prophecy. And in chapters 36 through 39, he'll tell us the story of the Assyrian siege and God's ultimate deliverance. And we'll get to that ooh, in a couple of weeks. And there we have Isaiah chapters 29 through 31.